Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we can say that we are no longer slaves to fear or sin because of what you accomplished on the cross and how you were raised from the dead. We praise you for that and ask that now you will just help us to understand this passage that we will be studying this morning. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Alvin Schmidt is a Lutheran clergyman that wrote a book entitled How Christianity Changed the World. And in it, he documents the influence that Christianity has had over the past 2,000 years. For instance, infanticide and child abandonment were infamously universal among the Greeks and Romans. However, once the gospel was introduced, to those cultures and people became believers, those practices would be eliminated or greatly diminished. The gospel taught that people were made in the image of God. And so Christians would not only oppose and condemn the practice, they would rescue and adopt the babies as well. It is said that the influence of the church on anti-infanticide laws is one of Christianity's greatest legacies. A similar impact was seen with the gladiator games. He explains, to see a gladiator stab and slice his opponent to death was top-ranked amusement. And then the gospel entered. And believers condemned the practice and they boycotted the games. He writes, the end of such entertainment is exclusively ascribed to the Christian church. Things like orphanages, hospitals, the end of slavery, child labor laws, the education of both sexes, equality among the sexes, the dignity of marriage, they all have the influence of Christianity to thank. It's a fascinating study of history. In many ways, his book outlines the impact Christianity had when the church took seriously the command to love and seek the welfare of others. His book clearly shows that when the gospel is preached and modeled, society is transformed. Now what does it mean to model the gospel? Is it just being nice people? How are we to live among the unbelieving in society? How are we to treat those that oppose us and disagree with our beliefs? If you have your Bibles or your observation worksheets, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2, we are going to start with verse 11. And I have a helper today that's going to help me read. Let's start at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which you, they slander you as evildoers, they may, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. 
For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who do good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor in if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person who bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it as with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Okay, thank you. All right, this past week, your homework was entitled Adorned with the Beauty Among Unbelievers. If you are a believer, how are you to behave? How are you to live among the unbelievers in your life? Answer, verse 12. You are to be excellent. You are to be excellent in behavior. All right, now what does that mean exactly? Sometimes we think that if we aren't doing anything truly offensive, if we are polite, if we don't say certain words, if we are uh, minding our own business, then, then that is excellent behavior. But what does it mean to be excellent in behavior? The ESV uses the word honorable. And the word there, it means good, beautiful, fitting. Right, that is what is to describe our behavior. And here's the first point on your paper. Number one, our behavior among unbelievers is to be good and fitting and beautiful. All right, now why? Why is that so important? Well, he tells us in verse 12, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. Now keep in mind here, the thing in which they are slandering you as evildoers is in your Christianity. It's, you're being slandered for your Christian beliefs. So that even though they are saying evil things about your Christianity, they will be able to see with their own eyes the good deeds that you are doing and then glorify God. All right, now turn with me to Titus 2. Keep your finger in 1 Peter because we're obviously going to be back there. But turn with me to Titus 2. Now, this is going to sound familiar. We've talked of it several times. And as we're reading through it, I want you to watch for the phrase, so that. <clears throat> you might even want to underline it. We're going to, sec we're going to Titus chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourselves to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in every way. 
in everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will be adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Okay, we spent a lot of time on this passage last semester, but why are we coming back this morning? Well, because this is describing excellent behavior. It's describing excellent behavior among the unbelieving. Here, we see Paul is telling Titus the same thing that Peter is saying. And he's saying, you are to have excellent, beautiful behavior among the unbelievers. Why? So that no one will be able to say anything bad about us, about Christianity, about Jesus. Let me ask you, as you're going about your day, are you giving people reason to trash Christianity? In the way that you conduct your affairs, or the way you deal with your children, or the way you don't deal with your children? Are you giving people reason to say bad things about the body of Christ? Because our behavior is to be so excellent that we do not dishonor the word of God but that we adorn it. Now, let's look back to 1 Peter, verse 12. <clears throat> I want you to see that word, observe. It comes from a Greek word that was used to describe an eyewitness. And here's number two on your papers. It meant to view something carefully and to watch something over a period of time to watch something over a period of time. It would be the equivalent of the English word scrutinize. All right, now Peter is, is teaching them something. He's teaching them that their lives are being observed, that their lives are being scrutinized. He's telling them, you live in a fishbowl. You are surrounded by a lost world and they are watching you. You live in a fishbowl by design. It is the design of God that you live your life in such a way that people will see your good works and be drawn to the gospel. Turn with me to, keep your finger in Peter, but turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians. Acts. Romans, 1 Corinthians. We'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. All right. <clears throat> Two things I want you to see. First of all, notice the word spectacle. In the Greek, that was a word for theater, for play. Now the phrase last of all was supposedly a phrase that was commonly understood at the time. It was referring to the last part of the performances in the Roman amphitheater. After the gladiators did their thing, the last act or the last of all, they would bring out the criminals. They would bring out those that were condemned to death. They would bring out the lowest of the low. And then they would bring out the wild animals. And the people would watch the destruction of the criminals and be entertained. Some say that Paul is referencing that here. 
in this passage, that he is likening himself <clears throat> to the last of all in a Roman amphitheater. Maybe he is. What we can know, what we can know for sure is that he understood that his life was a spectacle, that it was a theater, that it was a play to be watched and observed by the lost. Now, you and I are not apostles in the same sense that Paul, and yet this, thinks of so, and yet this speaks of something that we need to understand, and that is, if you are a believer, you have become a spectacle. You have become a theater. Your life is telling a story. Your marriage is a theater. The way you correct and deal with your children is a theater. The way you treat your mother or your mother-in-law is a theater. And why is that? Because by design, we live in a fishbowl. Here's our next point. Number three, by design, we live in a fishbowl so that the unbelieving world might observe our beautiful works and glorify God. Okay, now Peter is going to elaborate on what that will look like. So take a look at verse 13. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every, every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Okay, that word submit in verse 13, that is the Greek word hupotasso. And that should sound really familiar. Do you remember when we've studied that before? Do you remember? Where have we seen that word? Where have we studied it before? Yeah, yeah. We've, when we talk about husbands, correct? All right, yeah. We know this word. We've, we've studied this before. We know about this one. All right, that word hupotasso, it means to put oneself under another, to rank oneself under another. This is that word that's that military term that's used to describe the way soldiers would align themselves in battle. Number four in your papers, submit is a voluntary decision where you place yourself under someone or some group. Also, we see another familiar phrase. It says that we are to submit ourselves to every human authority institution for the Lord's sake. This is the reason why, for the Lord's sake. We are to submit to God by submitting to human institutions. Now, this is just a really good place to have a little mini lesson about government and to pull in some of those verses that your homework included. So find uh, with me Ro Romans chapter 13. This was in your homework, Romans 13. What should our attitude be about human institutions? Romans 13, we'll start at verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror 
I'm sorry, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. What should be our attitude about government and about civil authority? I was working on this lesson the weeks just prior to the election, just prior, prior to and following the election. <clears throat> and I was watching the protests on TV and I was reading the angry tweets and watching the news and something becomes painfully clear. We are a nation that hates government. We really hate politicians. We hate policemen. We hate judges, and not only do we hate them, we think we have the right to trash them. So this is probably a long overdue lesson. So we're gonna have a quick basics on government and civil authority. Number one on your paper, government and civil authority are God's idea. It wasn't Jefferson's, it's not the Clintons, it's not the Bushes. Okay, government is God's idea. The last part of verse one from Romans says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Government was God's idea. Here's our next point, number two. All human authority is delegated authority. Now we've talked about this before at length. If you remember, we discussed delegated authority <clears throat> as something that was to be done with pa by parents when we had our parenting class. We can understand the need for parental authority, but what about government and civil authority? Why do we need that? Well, we see a number of reasons that are found both in these passages. I'm going to give you today the Chuck Colson summary, and here is number three. The role of government is preserving order and promoting justice. First Peter put it like this, he said, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Nick Ripkin, in his book, The Insanity of God, he talks about going into Somalia in 1992, when because of civil war and fighting between several violent clans, there was no national government, there was no regional government, there was no local government. And as a result, there was no national currency, there was no public transportation or utilities, there was a non-existent economy. He said there was unimaginable chaos and violence and starvation. He likened it to hell. His job was to find a way to get humanitarian aid to them, but the chaos and the violence was so bad that it was making his uh, job impossible. All right, that is what non-rule looks like. And it brings us to our next point. Number four, government is a gift. Government is a gift of God's common grace. 
because the human heart is so evil, government is a gift. All right, now what if the government is evil? Are we to submit to them? What if it's a tyrant? Are there any exceptions or loopholes to this? this? What kinds of authority are we to submit to? Here's our next point, number five. We are to submit to all governing authorities. Peter's command is comprehensive. <coughs> all governing authorities without exception. Now, wait a minute. What do I mean by that? Well, should you obey the speed limit? Yes, it's an authority. What about the librarian that asks you to be quiet? What about the flight attendant that asks you to put away your cell phone? What about the HOA board that tells you that you can't raise chickens? <laughs> if it is an authority placed in your life, you are to submit to it. There are no exceptions. Now, it's helpful to understand that when Peter and Paul wrote the passage, the crazy, monstrous Nero was emperor, and he would eventually have both of them killed. Peter and Paul both write, knowing that the governing authorities will likely be pagans, and pagans act like pagans, and yet we are still to submit to them. In the days that followed Donald Trump's election, there were all kinds of protests and there were all kinds of Hollywood tweets that said they would fight and that he would never be their president. That might be very acceptable behavior if you are a Hollywood starlet, but it is unacceptable behavior if you are a child of God. Now, we are to submit to all governing authorities, but are there any exceptions to the degree of submission? And the answer to that is yes, there is one um, if they tell us to sin. And so here's our next point, number six. If there is ever a conflict between human authority and heavenly authority, we must choose to obey God over man. If a ruler tells you, you must bow and worship me, or you can never pray, or you must kill all the baby boys, or that you are not allowed to preach the name of Jesus, then that would be a case of needing to obey God rather than man. But our basic posture is going to be to submit to authority. It's been said that in most of the world, not all, and this is certainly changing, but in most of the world today, we seldom have to face the choice so our most common obligation is going to be to obey both God and men. Now, what if our governing authorities are evil? What if our society is corrupt? Are we to be doormats? Are, to we, be, are we to be silent and do nothing? In other words, are we to just do what we're told and never try to influence or confront? Well, here's point number seven. We have both the right and the obligation to confront and oppose the sins and evils of our society, but only in the Lord's way and power. And the way we submit to our husbands is going to be so helpful 
with us in knowing what to do. We've said before that submission to our husbands does not mean that we become mindless ninnies, all right? And it certainly doesn't mean that we don't try to confront them or talk to them about the sin and the gospel. And it will be the same way with civil authorities. All right, look at verse 17. It says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So yes, we must speak against sin and injustice and immorality, but we need to do it and find a way to do it that is respectful and honoring. All right, what is your attitude toward governing authorities? Are you thankful for them? When you sit at a red light that's taking forever to change, are you thankful for the authorities and the order they bring into your life? Do you follow the speed limit? Do you pay your taxes? Do you give honor to whom honor is due? Are you teaching your children to give honor to whom honor is due? Do they even know what that is? Now, in addition to submitting to governing authorities, verse 18 says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Now, some will like to take this passage and say that it can be applied to your bosses and jobs. Um, well, I, we want to uh, make an important note here. Slavery was nothing like the American workplace is today. So we want to be careful not to imply that. But um, having said that, is this a good time to talk about submitting to bosses because it's certainly a way that we can make our behavior excellent among Gentiles? Often when I'm researching, <clears throat> I read articles about today's millennials. And there are a lot of articles that are written for bosses and employers about how to manage millennials. Let me give you some examples. They are told, employers are told to make things fun. Millennials don't like boring grunt work. That employers need to explain why something needs done. Millennials want work to be meaningful. Here's the way one leadership brochure explained it this way. Millennials feel that basics such as punctuality and dress code are less important. They want fair and direct managers who are highly engaged in their personal development. That's lovely. <laughs> but Peter would say to you, submit to those in authority. If you are a believer, you are to submit to those that God has placed over you. And nowadays, that may be something as simple as showing up to work on time and in dress code. It may be something as simple as doing what you are told without having to be told why. It may be doing your job without having your boss needing to be highly engaged in your personal development. Submit to those who are in authority over you. Why? Because your label is not millennial. Your label is Christ follower. And Christ followers are to be the best employees on the job so that no one will have anything bad to say about Christianity. So that you can show the people at your workplace how beautiful the gospel is. Now what if 
you have a really bad boss. Well, based on verses 18 through 19, I think the implication is that you will. You are working with unbelievers. And in your life, you are likely to be surrounded with people that are unreasonable. And yet that does not change the instruction. Now, what if you're here and you're not a millennial? and you're not in the workforce. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or grandmother. What are you teaching your children and your grandchildren? Are you teaching them that they have to know why before they obey something? Are you teaching them that something has to be fun in order for them to do it? Are you teaching them that they only need to listen to the teachers and coaches that are reasonable? Now you may find yourself thinking, well, I don't want them to be mindless followers. Well, I don't either. Teach them discernment, teach them wisdom, but make sure they understand the clear command to submit to authority. All right, let's move on to verse 19. First Peter chapter 2, let's read 19 and 20. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Okay, something very important that we need to see here. <clears throat> so often the minute something becomes difficult, maybe the job becomes difficult, or the coworkers are difficult, or the school teacher or the ball team, be things become difficult, and we immediately think, this needs to stop. I need to get out of here. I need to change jobs. I need to switch ball teams. I need a new teacher. <clears throat> the minute something isn't fun or rewarding, we tend to think this can't be what God wants for me. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it's exactly what God wants for you. Now, <clears throat> don't misunderstanding. I am misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there isn't a time to change neighborhoods or change jobs or piano teachers. What I'm saying is there are going to be times when things get difficult, especially when you are dealing with difficult people. And God would have you bear up under sorrows, we where he would have you to endure it, where he would have you to stick it out. Why? because you are living in a fishbowl and that there are people watching you and they're observing your life and they're paying attention to how you handle things over the long haul. And God tells us that when you endure and you patiently deal with something, it finds favor. It finds favor because it puts him on display and glorifies him. Now, when it comes to how a Christian should be acting in the political arena, 
or in the workplace or in the HOA or in the PTA, at this point, how you are to behave among unbelievers, you might have more questions than answers at this point. And so Peter's going to deal with that. Let's take a look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Okay, I want you to see the word example because it is a beautiful word picture here and I have it on um, your handout. It means literally writing under and it has the idea of copying of the alphabet that is given to a student so that they might trace over it as a learning tool. My kids used to have one of those when they were learning, their al learning how to write. Okay, the word speaks of careful attention given to every detail so as to make an exact duplicate. All right, now let's be clear. What are we to duplicate? What are we to trace over? Okay, let's keep reading. Let's read verse 22 through 24. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he, utter, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. All right, what is it we are to duplicate? What is the example? What's the example that we're seeing here? Well, <clears throat> the example is we're being a given a description of the gospel. We're seeing Jesus laying down his life to die so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter is giving us an example on how we are to live among the unbelieving. We are to model the gospel before them. Have you ever thought about what that will look like? How do you show the watching world what the gospel is like? You lay down your lives. You're at the grocery store with a cart full of groceries and another person meets you at the register at the same time. What do you do? You're in the break room at work with a coworker and there is one donut left or one pod to the Keurig. What do you do? You see that there's trash and garbage left at the entrance of your neighborhood. What do you do? You lay down your life. You see, it's going to be far more effective to have a conversation about Jesus with somebody in the grocery line if they're standing in front of you or if they're the one holding the last cup of coffee or you have done something <clears throat> to help their neighborhood. When it comes <clears throat> to how we are to have an impact on the lost world, when it comes to how we are to behave among the unbelieving, Jesus has given us an example. <clears throat> We lay down our lives. Number five, we copy the example of Jesus and display the gospel by laying down our lives. <coughs> Last fall, I had the opportunity to go see my sister in Utah. And when I was making my airline reservations, I was very careful to choose an aisle seat. I wanted to be able to stretch my legs. I wanted to be able to get up and use the restroom without having to climb over somebody or wake them up. And so that was my plan. 
When I got there, there was a very big gentleman sitting next to the window. I was on the aisle. There was nobody in the center. I thought, ooh, this is good. We'll have lots of space. And then just at the very end, this very tall man, he was about six, seven, he comes down the aisle and he stands at the end of my row. I instinctively get up to let him in and he says, oh no, you don't have to get up. You can just slide right on in there. <laughs> and, and I was in the middle of studying First Peter. And I could see that the book was about suffering. I could see that it was about dealing with trials. But more than anything, I was seeing this call to believers to lay down their lives and to model the gospel. If you were to ask me what the biggest lesson was that I have got from studying this book, I would see that it is the need for me to be continually asking, how can I model the gospel? How can I lay down my life? That was a new lesson for me. I would not done that. So on that day, I knew immediately what I needed to do. I was going to lay down my life for that man. And that meant giving up my seat. That meant sitting squished for three hours. Now, Rosaria Butterfield, she puts it like this. She says, a believer in Christ is like a bridge. What is the purpose of a bridge? A bridge's job is to get walked on. We don't like the sound of that, do we? But as followers of the suffering Savior, we should count it no great loss to sacrifice a little for the sake of the kingdom. Joseph Son, he was a Roman pastor, Romanian pastor, <clears throat> that was persecuted terribly for his beliefs under communism. He puts it this way, I saw how God always conquers by a love <clears throat> that is self-giving and self-sacrificing. Now, on the day that I was on the plane and being asked to give up my seat, I was smiling as I moved all my stuff. There was, there was no way that I was going to let that poor guy sit in the center. I knew that. But in my mind, I was thinking, dude, you are nearly seven feet tall. You have, you have seriously got to be smarter when you are picking out your seat on an airplane. And so that was kind of running through my mind. And then I began to make small talk with him. And I learned that he had just buried his mother. He, um, he, that trip wasn't planned. He hadn't picked out. He, he likely took the last seat available. And it was such a reminder to me that we do not know what people are going through. We do not know what they are dealing with. And so we have to just trust God. And that brings us to the one last thing that we want to see. And he says in verse 23, he says that Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You know, I can pretty much guarantee it that there are gonna be times where you find yourself saying, why do I have to be the bridge? Why do I have to be the one that is always laying my life down? It's not fair. 
If you're a wife, if you're a mother, if you're a woman just trying to live a godly life, you're, you're probably going to have times where you don't feel appreciated or when you feel like someone's taking advantage of you, what do you do? Well, you do what Jesus did. You entrust yourself to a God that judges righteously. You trust. And here's our final point, number six. We lay down our lives because God can be trusted. God can be trusted. Let's pray. Father, our prayer today is very simple, that you would help us to be women that model the gospel in all its glory, in the way we deal with our children and our husbands and our neighbors and the strangers in the store, all of it. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.